Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hi, you clicked on it, so I'm going to respect your time and not do a lot of back back filling here. You, where we left off last time, we're here today. Ancient literature that is not, um, that's literature, it's not a list of laws or accounting, is replete with demons, demigods, and gods. They're everywhere. And then you look at the Old Testament and you find not much evidence here, at least not really in-your-face stuff. We talked about water. Water is huge in the Old Testament as a symbol of life, but also danger. There were storm gods like Baal and Rahab. There were monsters in the deep, such as Leviathan. And in places like Psalm 69, verses what, 14 and 15, you have, um, you know, don't let me sink in the waters, the people hate me. Water was a symbol of conflict with people, but also with spirits or gods out there. Water, troubled water was a frightening thing. With the Israelites, when they come to the Jordan River, it is in flood. And they believe, and so do the people on the other side of the river, that Baal lives in the water, that Baal, as I was always told to call him as a boy, I didn't find out until a few years ago that it was pronounced Baal, um, that you're to be afraid of the water because it's troubled. That means he and his legions of demons are in that water ready to kill you. And so water was life, but also water was conflict, death, very complicated. But some of those names were given uh, of other gods like Dagon or Baal, but some of them were given, uh, or you know, Ashtoreth, we know her, uh, but others like Rahab, that was a monster or a demon of the sea, Leviathan, the same. And some of these battles that are mentioned in the Psalms in particular, but they're in Proverbs and in Isaiah, like Isaiah 27, 1, some of the battles are looked upon as not having yet been won. Remember Daniel 10? Ongoing battles. Some of them are defeated, some of them not. You look in the, in the book of uh, 2 Peter, you look at Jude, and you find that some angels were chained up, others weren't. What's going on? We don't know. We, we don't know. The people to whom this was written, they had other literature. They had other stories, a ton of oral stories that we do not have. So we have to approach these things with a lot of humility saying, what we can guess, we can guess. But when you start trying to draw hard lines around this and saying, thus saith the Lord, you can get in a lot of trouble because there's just not that much information given to us. This ongoing battle Battle as a normative state is where we live. Now here's where I'm going to cause some of you to have more questions than I have answers. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two stories. The Jews knew that. They, they saw the contradictions. They saw the infills of one and, and you know, they, they saw that. 
but they were comfortable with it because of the way they looked at the creation story. If you'd like to read a lot more about that, but you're not a scholar, and therefore you really don't want to have to have you know, a dictionary app beside you and all of this other, John Walton has written an amazing set of books. Now, am I 100% in agreement with him? I'm not sure, but I'm not sure that that matters. They are amazing and they are well done. He has a great amount of respect for scripture, but he also knows the Jewish uh, tales, the, rab the rabbinical teachings. Uh, he knows the ancient languages. And so that's, it's just tremendous. And he writes it so that people like me, who I'm not a scholar of religious things, I'm able then to understand. So John Walton, if you're gonna start with one, uh, I really like the lost world of Adam and Eve but they all start with the lost world of. The second would, and it's really close to first, would be the lost world of Genesis 1. Something in Genesis 1 has bothered me since I was six or seven years old. And I don't have a lot of childhood memories, I'm not really sure why, but I do remember this. Every single time they would sing songs about God created the world, or they would uh, start doing lessons about God creating the world. I was all in and still am because God created the world, but they never could explain what happened in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the way, even there, he is working as a team and with a team. Refer to the sermons because they'll talk about this a bit more. They are uh, about you know, the Lord of hosts, the counsel of, of God, you know, the Bene Elohim, all of these things. There were, in the beginning, God, Elohim is plural. Now, can that be a, a royal we? You know, like we are not amused, something like that, that a, a king or a duke might use or a queen. Um, possibly, but later on in Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we have the plural again, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Huh. So what's going on? Now that really is going to be dealt with more in the sermons. What I want to deal with here is something even heavier and weirder. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yay. Verse two, it's a wreck. It's in chaos. Earth is formless, void, darkness, water, storms, chaos. Do you remember what water, storm, and chaos means in the Old Testament? That had taken over the planet, or that was the state of the planet when it was created. But that begs the question, why would God, who creates all things and knows how to create them well, make this? That immediately has to have a corrective of the Holy Spirit moving over the face of the waters and God pulling them back from the land. And once you understand the metaphorical language and the, uh, the low level of mysticism, but the understanding of evil and how to personify evil that the Hebrew writers had, it's easy for us to look up this and say, this something has happened before day one. Now, many people, look upon this and they, they'll go for what they call the gap theory. 
that there's a huge gap in time, millions, most likely billions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. I'm not convinced that God was trying to tell Moses or whoever was the first to write this down that uh, you know, the scientific backing of how he made the planet, I think he's trying to explain, I made it, I'm in charge of it. You now have to guard it. Now see, that was another thing that got me. Something, something on this earth looked like the destruction of a planet after a battle, but we don't know and we can't be dogmatic about this. And then in still chapter one, verse 28, Adam is told to subdue the earth. Now subdue the earth doesn't mean to strip mine it. It doesn't mean to pollute it. It doesn't mean to not care about the planet. It means you're going to have to get control of this thing. Well, what thing? Daisies? Aardvarks? I mean, what, what thing? This may help you. Do you remember in the story uh, when they get kicked out? Cherubim, uh, guardian cherubim are placed around the garden with their swords to make sure that man doesn't enter it anymore. Well, that guardian cherub, they were told to guard the Garden of Eden. Guess what? Adam was too. The subdue the earth, the word subdue there is the same word they're using for guard. He's looking at Adam and saying, you've been made in the middle of a war. You're going to have to fight this war. Guard this place. And he doesn't. Next thing you know, we've got a serpent who's worked his way into the garden and forming a relationship with Adam and Eve. War is the normative state for the cosmos. It's not that we like it, we don't like it, we wish it wasn't true, but it is true. And we were placed on this earth to take our part in the battle that has been raging before we were created. It's actually all through scripture if you know where to look. This makes more things make sense, like why in Ephesians, Paul, who never fought the Romans, who never led a protest march against unjust treatment, um, false imprisonment, he didn't do any of that. He looks at us and he says, get your armor on in Ephesians. Strap it on. Face forward. There's no back plate in that set of armor. If you turned your back, you're supposed to die. Face forward. And why Jesus would say rough things such as when a guy goes, well, just let me wait till my dad dies and then I'll, you know, follow you. He says, let the dead bury the dead. You've got, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not fit for the plow. By the way, every farmer out there knows this. Um, I've, I've actually helped, quotation marks there, um, farmers that allowed me to do the one single blade behind a mule or behind an ox. And man, is that rugged. And they only let me help like 20 feet because they're not stupid. But they, you know, I had the experience as a young man in and, and various different places on the planet getting to do that. If you don't know, while you're plowing, even on one of the big tractors, if it's not being run by GPS, different story, 
and you turn around and look, you will make the rose crooked. And Jesus is saying, we don't have time for that. You can't do that. Face forward, let's go. What did the angel say in Daniel chapter 10? We don't have time for this, Daniel. You're gonna to have to get up on your feet and listen. It's a battle. The best thing we can do, maybe not the best thing, but a constant thing we can do about the approach of evil is expect it because that's where we are. Well, there are, there are crowns in scripture. Why, how did, when do you give out crowns? You give out crowns when a battle has been won, when a contest has been won. We're getting crowns. There's going to be a battle. Now in the New Testament, whole different story. Demons are there literally from the first chapters. Not all of them, but you take a look at Mark, considered the earliest of our Gospels, whether or not it is. I mean, people have written so many books on this stuff. I say the majority of scholars still stay, say Mark was the earliest and that Matthew and Luke drew from Mark, but that all of them probably pulled from another source they call Q for the German word Cal, which means source. So earliest Mark, Jesus walks in, what happens? First chapter, demons. So we come from an Old Testament that had them, you know, a few mentioned, but most of them referred to metaphorically as water, monsters in the deep, or monsters in the dark waters. In the New Testament, what, what is going on? You have, um, you have 400 years of hurt. You have 400 years of deep hurt. Pigs have been slaughtered on the altar. Big idols to Jupiter and other gods have been placed in God's house. The Jews have been subjugated to the point where a great many of them are now comfortable and they become Hellenistic Jews. In other words, Jews who wanted to dress like the Greeks and talk like the Greeks and act like the Greeks. And you had people like Sadducees who were big religious leaders, rather a wealthier, higher class than other religious leaders. And they didn't believe in angels or demons or you know, life after death. They, they had decided to strip all that out and become modern Greek people. But you also had a collective of writing in North Africa, all the way up around that little curve to what is today Israel, people writing and writing and writing. They, uh, they wrote about how we got here and they wrote about gods and they wrote about demons and they had learned a lot in Babylon and in Egypt. And so they're working these things into the stories. The Maccabees had, had risen and freed the people and had fallen. And all of this conflict, where you have conflict, demons love to surge and they will fill in the gaps. If, for example, remember Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that's of the evil one? Now think about that. If my wife and I have a disagreement about something and she goes, no, and I say, yes. And she goes, no, and I say, Yes, you idiot. What have I just done? There's a gap 
I've created a crack. And the demons rush in. I can remember back when I did counseling, uh, these, this young couple came in. Uh, the, the wife was beautiful. I mean, just absolutely beautiful. And she sat there just quietly sobbing while the man sitting there, he's a good looking guy, but he was still one of those guys that if he said, that's my wife, he would have gone, really? Okay. It would take it a second. He went just listing her faults and listing her faults. And I'm sitting there for the first 10 minutes, just watching us. And then he then called her a name and that name's not appropriate. Now, you might not have noticed because if you don't know me and you've never met me or seen a full-size picture of me, I just look like a big, great big giant head in front of you here. Um, I'm not a big man. I'm 5'9", um, never been you know, fully heavily muscled guy. He was gym rat, muscle. But when he said that word, I brought my hand up high and slammed it on my desk. I mean, that came out of nowhere because I was just sitting watching, I hadn't nodded, hadn't done anything for 10 minutes. And suddenly this bam, things on the desk shook. He pulled back, she gasped and looked at me and I leaned in and I said, who gave you that word? Who are you listening to? Who gave you that word? And he said, no, no, I'm just, I'm just really not it. There are so many words in the English language, we have more than twice as many words as the next language. I don't know if you know that, it is true. We have lots of words. We've got hundreds of thousands of words you could have chosen. Who gave you that word? Who are you listening to? That when you decide you've got to criticize your wife, you're casting around looking for another word to hurt who handed you that one and said, try that? Who are you listening to? Where there is conflict, the devil finds cracks and the demons rush in. We see that on the battlefields. We see that in prisoner of war camps. We see that in prisons. We see brutal treatment. We're going, how can one human being do this to another human being? Oh, that's been through history got to tell you something. If you're one of those walking around going, well, I just don't know that I could ever trust Germans because what they did in World War II, you can always find the people to do what they did in your country, in your society, as easily as they could find it there. There are always people willing to listen and take whatever the devil hands them and grab power over others in a very sick, horrific way. Conflict is what we've, we were born into it. Don't you remember? I, even as a kid, you know, I've heard people talk about, oh, the innocence of children. Well, they are very innocent in many ways. I'll grant you that. But there's nothing more cruel than a kid. And it doesn't get better at middle school. It doesn't get much better in high school. It, it starts getting better, believe it or not, in college, because after a while they begin to realize they're not in charge of the world and their little clique might not be either which is a pretty good lesson to learn. But we aren't born sweet. I don't believe in inherited sin. I don't believe in original sin. I'm just saying we were born into a universe full of conflict. Maybe we should figure out why we're here. And 
Jesus then walks upon the scene and openly declares that this earth is being run by an evil prince. Chapter 12, verse 31. You can also find it, um, well, John does it again. Chapter 14 and in chapter 16, around verse 11. I can remember being at a seminar up in the Toledo area. This is probably 20 years ago now. And I wasn't the only speaker. They had quite a few. And one of the speakers talked about that we, you know, as we sing, we need to remember that we are at war against the prince of this world. The devil's the ruler of this world. Well, the next speaker got up and felt that they needed to make a corrective and said, no, no, no. God is God and Jesus is Lord and God is, is God of this earth. The devil just acts like he, no. Jesus said the devil is the prince of this world and the ruler of this world. Paul, when he lists the heavenly powers, um, and not heaven as in good heaven, but just spiritual powers, talks about different ranks, rulers, principalities, dominions. We, how about Daniel chapter 10? Prince over this country, the prince over that country. We do not need to protect the reputation of God by backing away and going, no, no, um, he's in charge of everything. He's in charge of everything, which is what the Calvinists try to do. But it doesn't work. It sets up a whole bunch of contradictions and issues that drag God's reputation down. And this is, this is provable by how Calvinism, the more it grows in an area, the less belief you find in that area within decades because people start putting two to two together and they don't go together. And there's a problem there. Jesus said, whenever you see a strong man, you gotta bind him. You gotta clean the house. You gotta bring, he, he doesn't say when you see him, don't worry, God's got a plan, it's all sorted. He calls you into the battle. Paul agrees that the world is under the rule of the battle, uh, of the devil rather, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Ephesians 2.2. 2. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, and we keep seeing this. God calls us to take the world back. We are part of the battle. We are working with God to take the world back. Now, the weapons of our warfare are love, faith, humility, kindness, benevolence. They are not swords, rifles, and sticks. And if that bothers you in any sense, please understand I'm not a pacifist. What I'm saying though is that Christians never have the right to pick up weapons to expand the gospel. We, I believe that we're all right to drive out evil. If evil kicks the door in the middle of the night and people come in to harm me and my wife, I'm likely not going to be able to do a whole lot about that because of size, age, uh, waking up in the middle of the night. But if I could, grab a weapon and fight them out, I would do that because I'm not a pacifist. But that's not how you spread the gospel. That's not how you drive back evil at a cosmic level. You do that by growing the garden that has all those fruits of the Spirit and then teaching others how to do that. Well, there's so much more on this, but we're, we're heading towards somewhere, and so I don't want to get all there. Just Remember this, Jesus said the people that he met who were sick, maimed, or had lost a loved one 
were victims of Satan. He didn't say they were sick because of God's will. Um, Luke 13, starting in verse 11, going through verse 16, uh, with with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bound by Satan. Jesus does not look upon illness as an okay thing. Now, is all illness caused by the devil? I don't think so, no. Uh, Neither did Luke, by the way. When Luke would list the different diseases that Jesus would heal people or deliver them from, uh, he would separate demonic possession from epilepsy, let's say or from being crippled as a result of accident. All these words are in there in the Greek and they unfold with um, a precision we don't really get in the English language when we try to translate them. Uh, There was, however, there are diseases caused by Satan. Satan can cause diseases. And I know some of you right now are wondering about COVID. I don't think so, but I think think he certainly used it um, to make us war against each other. To Jesus and to the disciples, being saved meant being risen. We've we've overcome the world. We we are better now. We're great. And so Jesus rebukes a storm. Uh, Jesus, let's go here. We all know Mark 1, uh, Jesus, I think you do. Um, He heals Paul's, sorry. You know Mark 1, let's start over, shall we? I know it's a long form, this is why it's long, I have to keep correcting myself, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Well, there's a little bit, there's a story there in in Luke too. Uh, Luke chapter, what is that, Luke chapter four? Yeah, Luke 4, 38 and 39, let's see. When Jesus left the synagogue, listen to this, and went to the home of Simon, Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. So, which illnesses are caused by viruses, germs, um, toxicity, all that kind of stuff, or genetics, and which ones are caused by demons? We don't know. And I, first of all, you never, never, never blame the victim. Somebody is sick, you don't go, well, what were you doing? And we tend to do that. You might not think so, but think about it. Have you ever met somebody who's been sick for 20, 30, 40 years? One sickness after another, perhaps disaster after disaster. And you haven't thought to yourself, what are they doing wrong? We do that. We we run out of compassion. Compassion fatigue sets in. We don't know, so my first response is always, let's treat it with the best medicine we've got. Let's give them rest, let's give them community, let's make sure they got quality food and medicine and treat them with the best medicine we have. But we know this world is not our home, we're just a passing through. Eventually this world will kill us one way or the other. So what are we to be about while we're here? Well, I don't think we should be about going about and going, all right, that's a demon that's a virus, that's a demon, that's a virus. I don't think we've got the intelligence, the equipment, or the duty to do that. 
I think we're just to treat people with the best that we've got. Um, if, you do, if you go any more than that, it, de it develops cracks that the evil one can get in. I've suffered with um, pain in my head for well over 30 years now. Um, I've had some injuries. I had a tumor. These things all add up. Uh, people will say, oh no, it's all right. I've got a headache now. But I can remember back, I, I was back around doing my master's maybe, but I was a young man. And one of the people that I was with looked at me and says, Patrick, you need to come to my church because we can get rid of that headache. And I was always a skeptic of that sort of thing. And I, and I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? He goes, you just, the problem is you don't have the faith to drive that from you. Oh, good, good. Because now I've got a headache and I'm inadequate in my faith. Good, Not helpful. <laughs> and, and he would go on and on. And this is a guy much older than me. And he would just push that, and you know, we get rid of these things, we get rid of these things. Um, I don't do that to people. Just don't. I've talked to atheists who were born with a, a birth defect of some sort, and their mamas took them from faith healer to faith healer, and they don't want anything to do with God. Let's be very careful. Just be aware this is a sign of battle that not all things are right on the planet. Jesus says driving back the evil is really what we're here for. Uh, we'll stay in Luke since we're already there. Luke 11, verse 20. Um, President Abraham Lincoln quoted the divided against yourself. You know, you cannot stand that bit first. But he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's a sign that the kingdom is here. Some of you have already defeated demons. You've defeated demons in your life. You've battled through illness, financial ruin, war, addiction. However, make sure that you never, never judge others who are not yet free. That it's just, it's really important. No, um, no Marine ever walks up to another Marine who's wounded or bleeding out and goes, dude, what's up with that? Why'd you let that happen? They don't do that. Let's not let Christians do that either. And remember that maybe you got off easy. Maybe your demons, as much as, much as you fought them, maybe you went through rehab five times. That's not an exaggeration. People always have to go through more than once and some go through quite a few times before they can get control. We don't look down on them. We don't know what demons they're facing. And if you remember in Luke 5, uh, there was there's some demons who just didn't want to go. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out with fasting and prayer. Other times, Mark 9, uh, Jesus gave the apostles authority to cast out demons. And they tried and it didn't work. And he came back to them and he said, yeah, these are the tougher ones. And again, prayer and fasting helps us to resist the, de the devil. Let's use that word for a minute. Do you remember we're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you? It's a direct quote from scripture. I used to think that meant, you know, 
No, devil, step back there. I'm no having you. Step away from me. And he'd just go, oh, no, and, you know, run because I've got Jesus with me. No, no. Remember, the devil got Jesus on a cross, whipped, his back ripped off, holes in his head, and nails to his hands and feet. The devil still will come at you, right? So what does that mean, resist the devil and he will flee from you? The word resists there is a term that was used in sports, specifically wrestling and specifically in a form of wrestling that was often to the death. You fight him in this life, he cannot touch you in the next. Not quite as happy, happy, happy as what we thought it meant, but doesn't it match with your experience better? Doesn't it? Have you ever defeated a demon in your life and then looked around and gone, well, the field's clear now. Zero problemas. I have nothing. You know, this is fine now. No, I don't think you did. And I think even if you did do that, what came right in your face? Another challenge. So this is our. This is what we do. We we have. We have battles to fight. I came back to America in the late '80s, and we lived in Lancaster, Ohio, for. I think just over eight years. There was a seminar being held at Ohio Valley College. Uh, it later became Ohio Valley University and then it shut down. And I think that was in 2022. But it was a college allied with the Churches of Christ. And they were putting on a seminar that interested me about church history. And so I went down, had to pay for my own hotel and such. Nobody knew me, there were, so nobody, I, I wasn't being asked to talk or anything, didn't want to, didn't know the subject, that's why I'm going. So stay in the hotel. That next morning, I get up to go start listening, and I realize, oh no, I've forgotten my notebook. See, I take voluminous notes that nobody can read, because <laughs> after a while, you go through enough school, nobody can read what you're writing. But I, I really needed to take my notes. Back then, kids, there were no phones, laptops, iPads, nothing like that. Uh, I'd never seen a computer at that stage, except on television, and they filled up one end of a warehouse. So I needed to stop. Well, I was used to being in Breton, where you have a news agent. That's what they're called, news agent, almost every corner, right by the Greg's Bakery, if you're in Scotland. Uh, and newspapers and toys and sundries and sweets and all of that is in there. So I, I'm driving around, I looked over, and any of you who've ever lived in Vienna, West Virginia, or Parkersburg, West Virginia, you'll, I, I assume the stores are still there, I don't know. And I looked over and it said, People's News. And I went, brilliant, pulled the car over, went in. I'm looking around for notebooks, found a notebook, found a newspaper, because back then you didn't have, it didn't, we read newspaper. Newspaper, grabbed a pen, looked up. And when I looked up, I was looking at a solid wall of pornography. Now, my first thought wasn't, oh, this evil, which is before my eyes, how darest it exist in my present time and stuff like that. I know my first thought was, top half of this thing is glass. And every leader in that particular church tribe 
is driving by this morning to go to the lectureship and going to look in there and see my face. <laughs> well, I put the stuff back, got out. Told a couple of friends who'd also come down to the lectureship that story, and they got all huffy. They're going, doesn't that just infuriate you? That this, oh, you know, oh, it's, and I looked at them and I go, no, I didn't get angry. And they said, why not? I said, because I wasn't surprised. Oh, I was surprised I was standing in a store that sold porn. I'll, I'll grant you that. I'll grant you that. But I wasn't surprised that porn existed and that it was available. Um, because evil's everywhere. I expect it to show up. Now, I do want it to go away and I'll do what I can to make it go away. But their first response should not be jumping back going, oh no, I am now righteously indignant so much so that I will become completely ineffective and not work on this, but rather walk around thinking how horrible the world is. You know, it's the poet said a long time ago, and it's still correct. It is better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. Do what you can. I bought my notebook and my newspaper and my pen at a store that didn't sell pornography. I gave somebody else my money. All right. Now, by the way, I'm not in control of that. They might have taken my money and gone out and bought drugs. I, I don't know, but at least I didn't directly contribute. You know, pick and choose. Don't have, don't let anybody pick or choose for you. Say, right, we're all boycotting. No, pick and choose. All right. Let's let's talk a little bit more about about this war and death and such. All right. First of all, I want to start with Mary, young Mary. We don't talk about Mary much in the Protestant world. I'm not a Protestant, by the way. Uh, I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Christian. And, I'm, and I don't say that like a lot of sects do. Uh, there are certain uh, little religious groups that claim that they are the church. Therefore, they're not a Catholic or Protestant. They're the original. I'm not doing that either. I'm just saying I'm just a believer. I'm like you. I'm struggling through this world, looking for the light. But Mary gets ignored in at least half of Christianity. And I think it's because Mary gets so much attention and adoration and I, I wanna say worship, but the fact is Catholics will tell you, no, they don't worship. To us, it looks like worship. They say it's adoration. So, okay, let's say adoration. There's no reason to offend our, our Catholic brothers and sisters. But regardless, when she realized that she was going to be the conduit for the king of the planet that was going to come through her to earth. She knew it was war. Have you ever read the Magnificat, her prayer? Oh my goodness, Luke chapter 1. Look at this as a war prayer. Mary says, uh, Luke 1 46, Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty ones has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. Here we go with war. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Did you ever notice the war part 
of the Magnificat. Jesus is coming into a planet that's at war and he's ready to engage. Mary was ready too. In fact, the, the use of her verbs in here always fascinates me. She speaks of it as if it has already taken place. She has that kind of faith that God's already done this through this son. And then take a look, um, fast forward, although you'll have to turn backwards, to Matthew 16, verses 13 through, through 19, I think. Yeah. Um, we mentioned this last week. You know, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they'll say, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. And they'll go, who do you say? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here we go. Verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I'll tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the word Hades we're going to talk about, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, what's going on here? Well, when I was a boy, and I, we said this last week, and I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll be brief. We would always talk about, um, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for some reason, we always felt like we were going to be under attack by hell, but, we, but hell wouldn't win. That's not what Jesus says. Gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive. We're supposed to go take the devil's territory away from him. We're supposed to take away the land they've already got. We're supposed to tear down those gates because Jesus says we can, we will, and that's why we're here. The gates of Hades, Hades was the realm of the dead. And back then, oh my goodness, the concepts were all negative. There wasn't much of a heaven in most people's heads at that period of time. He says, death, evil, it cannot stand. We're going to tear it down. And if you're wondering, well, then why, why hasn't he? I'd recommend a few things. I would um, recommend a book by the late Hans Rollman, R-O-L-L-M-A-N. Hans was, um, he worked for the UN. He was an atheist and he was a socialist but he was also honest with his facts and figures. And so if any of those put you off, don't let it. Just be aware of it and check the data. And a book called Factfulness, it's one word, it's a made up word, Factfulness. He measured every metric, um, women, children, access to education, everybody's access to healthcare, access to clean water, access to adequate food, nutrition, safety of possessions, all of these things, and found that over the last 50 years, not only had they gotten better, but every single one of them had gotten exponentially better. Even an atheist recently wrote a book called The Moral Arc, taking the line from Martin Luther King Jr. who talked about the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. The atheist wrote The Moral Arc showing that 
people are becoming more moral. It's so hard, I know, because of what you're seeing on TV, and especially uh, with the divisions between nations and politics right now. But the fact is, what governments used to be able to get to do and get away with, they can't now. They still get away with too much. We all agree with that. Human beings that are evil get away with too much. We can all agree on that. But it's not at the scale that it used to be. There are not hordes from Mongolia destroying entire civilizations across one-fourth to one-third of the planet. There are not concentration camps set up where six million Jews, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Lutherans, and Gypsies are being killed. Where there are concentration camps, like with the Uyghurs, the world disapproves. I don't think they disapprove enough, frankly. We still buy all the stuff made by the slaves, and that breaks my heart, but we're aware of it, we disapprove, and things have gotten better. But it's still a war, and it's still going to kill you. It's still going to kill me. We'll die of old age, or we'll die of accident, or we'll die of disease, or we'll die of war. Well, those are pretty much our options. There are a couple of, you know, asteroid could strike you. I'd still call that an accident. Moving on. What does he say? Declare your loyalty. Pledge your allegiance to Jesus. We're at war. Who are you going to follow? Randy Harris, a great theologian, resident in Tennessee, um, and a qualified, educated, credentialed theologian and minister, summed up the book of Revelation this way. God has a team. Satan has a team. God's team wins. Pick a team. That's, that's just so that I'm very upset I never came up with that. All credit to him. Pick a team. There has to be a declaration of loyalty. Do you remember when Philip was about to baptize, well, the Ethiopian treasurer, the eunuch, he's often called, asked to be baptized. Philip said, well, you've got to pledge allegiance first. You, you've got to, do you believe? And he says, I believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Okay. Then he was baptized. Jesus says that's what he will build his church on, those who pick his side. Now, I do, I'm aware that some people read this as he's saying he's going to build it on Peter. That's a very, it's a bad misreading, but that's not our story, so I'm not going to go down that particular one, right? We'll save that for a Monday morning message that isn't long form. Pay particular attention to verse 18 there. Hades is not the same as hell. In the note in my particular Bible I've got laying down here, it says hell, and it just isn't. Hell means every power of death. I'm sorry, Hades means every power of death, decay, disease, pain, fear, nightmare, war, torment that comes from these demons, powers of the air, the cosmic battle we're all in, and then brings people, all humanity, down to death, oblivion. Just very briefly, um, Bart Ehrman, who is also an atheist, sometimes calls himself an agnostic, wrote a very good book called A History of Hell. And I'd recommend it, I really would, because he unfolds this world, word 
and you begin to see what they meant when they, they used the word, and that's very important. Um, if some of you are troubled that I read atheist uh, literature, I would ask you to be troubled by ministers who don't. If you only read those people you agree with, what's the point? We need to, um, we need to know what everybody's saying. And just because somebody's an atheist doesn't mean they're not good at their job, right? I have a lot of atheist friends and I wish they weren't atheist, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk bad about them. I'm not going to tease them. I won't talk bad about them even if they're not there. You know, what, I believe the love of God is big enough to handle them fairly and with grace and mercy. But back to here, this, the NIV, I love the NIV, but it gets it wrong here. It really does. It'll use the word overcome. Um, it can certainly mean overcome. It, it means we're going to blast through the gates and it's already happening. If it's not happening as fast as you would like, welcome to human humanity and the human condition. But it's happening as God unrolls it with our help. He needs us in there because that's part of the plan. Not because he needs our power, but because that's part of the plan is that we work together. Right after creation, what did God do every day? came down to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. What do you think that meant? It meant he likes walking with us, he walks with us, he likes working arm in arm with us. That's why he keeps saying, come let us, come let us. Uh, you know, let's, let's agree, let's work, let's negotiate. Whenever Abraham uh, started negotiating for, the, for you know, Sodom and the numbers of people that might be able to save it, God didn't say to him, wait, 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 I said something, buddy. <laughs> From the foundation of the world, before you were born, I made a number here, buddy. He goes, what number you got in mind? <laughs> it's just, it's like they're sliding paper back and forth at the car lot, uh, except much more important, they were human beings. God is willing to work with us. That's the plan. Well, Gregory Boyd, I'm, I'm just gonna read a quote from him, may I? Because as I brought up last week, uh, this particular series of long form videos is based largely on his book, God at War. I have adjusted a lot of things, but it would be remiss of me not to give him full credit for opening up this stream in my head and really saving my faith years and years ago with a, a marvelous book, frankly. Quote, this teaching, uh, what we just read, provides a blueprint of what the body of Christ is to be about. It is to be about what Jesus was about, aggressively breaking down satanic fortresses where we can find them, in people's lives, in families, in churches, and in society at large. The church is to expand the rule of God on the authority of Christ by binding evil and setting people free. In a word, our charter is to live out a theology of revolt throwing all we are and all we have into guerrilla warfare against the occupying army, the tyrannizing powers of darkness. Do not oversweeten the story of Jesus. Do not always have him in pretty robes with pretty hair, holding a little baby lamb 
this is also war. And we have a, play, a part to play in it. I have no idea when you'll be watching this. I know when it's going to be posted. It is being recorded a couple of weeks ahead of time. But I visited with a couple of our members out of Alabama. And by the way, if you want to meet with other members of Our Safe Harbor, uh, and to be a member, all you have to do is ask, frankly. Uh, you do not have to leave your church. I'd say the majority of the people who are members of Our Safe Harbor go to a brick and mortar church if not every week, they still go fairly often. So we don't ask anybody to leave whatever you're going to now. That's it. They came up to talk about Northern Alabama and looking for a way to grow the groups there. And one of them looked and said, you know, it's obvious, Patrick, you were called for this. And I, that was very grateful. Very, I, I was grateful, it's very kind. But they said, how do you do it at your age because they're a little bit younger than me. And they said, they're, they're worn out. Hey, I get worn out too. But I plan to keep doing this until God stops me. Accident, disease, stroke, any of that can happen because I live in a battlefield. But I'd love to do this up into my 70s, which isn't that far away <clears throat> because I turn 67 in December. <clears throat> so start, you know, there are only a certain number of, of um, chances to buy great presents between now and then. Anyway, somebody else has a birthday in December. Anyway, let's talk about that. When Gregory Boyd talks about grabbing the enemy's territory, pushing our way in, every year I get these emails that will say, isn't Chris Christmas just a pagan holiday? Didn't the Norse people, Germanics people put up trees and worship them? Didn't Jeremiah talk about, uh, you know, carving a tree and then putting gold on it and worshiping it. He wasn't talking about a Christmas tree. He was talking about building an idol. And we're all these, you know, Santa Claus and all this. I don't care. They're ours now. We took them. They belong to Jesus now. The only people that when they see a beautiful Christmas tree or Christmas lights going down the street think, oh, this is paganism, are people who were told it was paganism by their, their ministers. That's it. Pagans don't go around going, oh good, we're worshiping Thor now. No, they don't. Yeah, I know some pagans too. Uh, even though some people whose last name is pagan, I've told them, I would change my name. I just, I don't think I could walk around with that one. Uh, oh, here's pagan. <clears throat> anyway, and by the way, I know one person, that that's their first name. And I'm thinking, I don't know what your parents are thinking, frankly, but maybe I do. Anyway, Easter, it happens again. What does Christ have to do with bunnies and eggs and Easter egg hunts? This is all from fertility cults. Easter, in fact, means star. And Lucifer was a morning star. Yeah, Esther, that's, that's her name too. What do you want to do with her? Now, we don't turn kids loose to find Easter eggs because we want them to be closer in their heart to Satan. <laughs> no, maybe that used to belong to him. It doesn't now, it's ours. That's how we do it. The Roman Catholics had, and I, I pick on them here, not in a bad way, by the way, um, because they're the only group I knew of that did this as a matter of strategy but they would go into an area and they would find whatever gods the people were worshiping. And gods almost always had 
a connection to an oak grove or a spring or a well. And they would go and say, no, that's not the, the God that is supplying this water. This is now healing water and it's St. Bridget or it is you know, St. <clears throat> Ethbert or somebody like this. Yes, there really was one. <clears throat> Sorry, <clears throat> when you're doing long form, there's no way I'm hitting the stop button at 55 minutes to clear my throat. <clears> throat> there, there is software for that. We don't have it. <clears throat> we run a very tight ship. We hope we have enough money one day where we can do these a lot better. That would be brilliant. It really would be. Right now, this is an iPhone with a uh, $10 microphone. That's it. Uh, but thank you for letting us um, do this anyway. You allow us to. <clears throat> now, what, what did they do? They went around saying, oh, you celebrate in late December Saturnalia. Well, let us talk to you about who the real God of the winter is who then brings back the spring and the God of trees and the God of eternity. Uh, all of this stuff was then taken and Christianized. I don't have a problem with that. I believe that, yeah, they, they may have spread more myths than they needed to, but that's probably gonna be said about us by our grandkids. Again, if it's the devil's territory, we take it. <clears throat> God isn't ruling on earth the way he should be yet. We all agree there, right? <clears throat> what can we do about that? I would say quite a lot. Jesus has us pray in the Lord's Prayer. You know, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's, you know, it's a, let's, we're going to work on this. Who do we rely upon to supply our food? Rome, our government, or God? Who do we rely upon to form our family and to lead our family? Government or God? Government wants to. Way back, a long time ago in America, and it's also in Britain, but I don't know when it was established in Britain, but way back in the early uh, 1900s, it became federalized, the parents patriae, that the state was the parent of the child. And therefore, if the child was endangered, the state could come in. I think we all agree that that's at many levels a very good thing because there are bad parents, there are uh, abusive parents, neglectful parents and the like. But what's happened is that over the years, we have become an infantile people that are looking for government solutions <clears throat> rather than church solutions, rather than faith solutions. We are supposed to be the ones sharing our food and bread, sharing our homes. We are supposed to be the ones going around forgiving others. Do you remember? That's in the Lord's Prayer as well. And then right after that, after the Lord's Prayer, he says, if you forgive others, they'll be forgiven. But if you don't, they won't be. I mean, that's a death, that's a nail in the head of Calvinism right there. Instead of Jesus saying, God's already decided who's gone to heaven and who's going to go to hell, you have nothing to do with that. He says, get out there and forgive people. Forgive. Matthew 13 and 14, um, <clears throat> the chapters, chapters 13 and 14, 
are full of warfare terms. Um, remember, Jesus started his ministry in Mark 1 by confronting a demon in the synagogue. It's naive to think that the devil is going to be passive toward us as we move into his territory. He's going to fight you. Yeah, I've been disowned. I've been slandered. I have uh, been attacked. And I expected that. And it, you know, I've had people, sweet, sweet people, come up saying, you know, I don't know how you handle all of this. Frankly, it's, it's not that hard anymore. It really hurt for a while. And, and, but mainly that was because childhood issues where I was not very valued and told I was doing good growing up. Then what happens? You become an adult who looks around trying to get people to tell you that you're good, that you did a good job. It's a, so some, a lot of that was my own making. <clears throat> but after a while, I began to realize um, what they say and what they write and what they isn't hurting me. What's hurt income? You know, I used to speak at a ton of churches that won't have me back. And so all that income's gone. Uh, okay, that's fine. You know something? If you look really careful, you will see that I am still alive. I'm still eating. Uh, not as heavy as I used to be, but I did that on purpose. <laughs> so I'm not starving to death. <clears throat> I still have a vehicle uh, that works. Uh, so far I hadn't stopped, and I don't think I will for a long, long time. I have a wonderful wife. I live in a house that's not leaking. I am blessed and blessed and blessed, and most of you are too. So if you take an attack, eh, it's okay. If you're taking fire in military terms, you're over the target, which means you're close to where you need to be. Let's just deal with this and work with this. Let's take the territory back for Jesus. That's what we do whenever we're, try we're trying to bring in kids from off the streets, give them something else to do, teach them about Jesus, or just feed them and give them you know, balls to play with and a place, safe place to play. All of that is shoving the devil back, getting a bit more light on. When people are diseased because of poisoned water, going in, finding out ways to deliver fresh water to them and stop the polluting of their local waters, that's Christian's work too. That's God's work. It's what, it's what we're supposed to be about. Um, <clears throat> I'd like, there's so much more I'd like to do here, but let's, let's go over some questions. Now, the two big questions we've already talked about, those are being dealt with in the sermon series and a whole lot of information is there that you need to merge with this. And that is what kind of God made the world and two, what kind of world did that God make? And I got those two questions from Richard Rice, so credit to him. But in previews, for all of this and, and I asked some questions and I, I want to ask these questions. Is God in control of the future? Does, God, does everything fit into God's plan? When a child dies, when a nation goes to war, when planes hit a building, did God plan that? When a shooter enters a school, and shoot some kids and not the others. Did God plan that? 
Does God control all things? Does God know the future? Does God plan all things? Now, most of us would not call ourselves Calvinist. Most of us don't even know what Calvinism means, to be honest. I've thought about doing some long-form videos on why I'm not a Calvinist, but these really answer a lot of that anyway. Most of us, while we're not Calvinist, would have a gut response. Is God in control of the future? Yes, because we've got this concept of God's got to know everything, everything, everything. Well, what if a thing isn't a thing? What if it doesn't exist? Remember we brought that up last week? Future doesn't exist. Quintillions of possibilities of future events exist. And God can choose points in future, as many as he wants, to make certain. But you remember last week, the incredibly important graphic I was working on over here? Um, it, uh, the way we get to those points has not been set. God didn't, do, you know, does everything fit into God's plan? He, God has a plan, and a baby dies. We'll say, maybe he needed another angel. That's a horrible, horrible thing to say. Absolutely horrible. God knows how to make angels. He doesn't have to kill kids to get one. And human beings don't become angels when they die. So your theology is not helpful, and you're looking at parents saying, God killed your kid, that's probably not going to be helpful for their faith journey. Does God control all things? We get very nervous. Does he know the future? Does God plan all things? How about let's just look at a story. I think we all look at a story. I like stories. 2 Kings chapter 20, all right? Uh, verses 1 through 6. I can't turn the pages fast enough. You ever seen those guys that do video um, they do vlogs. They travel all around and are holding in one hand the camera while they're going up ladders and such. I always go, wow, dude, how do you do that? I got two hands and I'm still trying to turn pages while talking to people. All right, 2 Kings 20. You ready? Verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. Hezekiah had been a good king, made some stupid mistakes, but they still talk about good King Hezekiah, and he's dying. He's so sick, he's about to die. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says. Now in the NIV, it says the Lord, and the Lord, the word Lord is all capitals, which means in the original manuscript, we don't have the original, our oldest manuscripts, it's the Tetragrammaton, the, the writing of the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, we don't know how to pronounce it, but the name of Almighty God, right? This is what Almighty God says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. That seems very matter of fact, doesn't it? Not a lot of room for ambiguity, right? Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayer 
and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you'll go up to the temple of the Lord, and I'll add 15 years to your life. And I'll deliver you and the city from the hand of Assyria, and I'll defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. What just happened? Well, um, God changed his mind because somebody asked him to. Well, I think it's really plain that he didn't always change his mind because somebody asked him to. Or we wouldn't have children developing cancer and we wouldn't have parents developing Alzheimer's. Do I need to go on? But does he sometimes listen and go, okay, we can change this. Because this wasn't something that Hezekiah just got sick and God said, well, I don't know if you're going to make it. He says, you will not recover. You will die. Hezekiah says, wait, I'd like more time. I've been serving you. I've got more left in me. And God goes, okay, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Wow. He can have our hearts changed by our broken hearts and tears. Back in September 10th, the first sermon that parallels this and with different material. So it's not like you've hear, if you've heard this, you don't need that and vice versa. Uh, there's just a ton of material. All right, I'm getting it out there fast as I can. Uh, it'd be great if I had a cabin in Alaska and somebody paid for me to be a year in there and locked me away to write all this. But um, I also have grandkids and I'd like to see them. So, you know, I'll always complain. I'll find a way, right? He can have us, his heart changed by us? Yeah. September 10th, at the end of the first sermon in this series, I played a song, or tried to, an old hymn, Does Jesus Care? If you don't know that hymn, look it up. That's, just, that's his name, Does Jesus Care? It swells back, oh yes, he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. There are times in Scripture that that happens in such a startling way that we're going, wait a minute, God can say, this is what I've decided. And we can come back at him and say, how about this? And God will listen. And sometimes, like with Abraham, we talked about before, negotiate down to a point and sometimes reverse himself. Think about that. What kind of God created the world? I don't think that's the God I grew up with or the God you grew up with, but it is the God who is. It is the God who exists. And we weren't told about that God, but it's here in Scripture. How about in Isaiah 48, 3 through 5? I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago before they happened to you. I announced them to you. So, God knows the future. It's not what it said. He told them what he was going to do when that time came that we call the future. But it doesn't mean that he knows everything we're going to do agrees with it, how we're going to negotiate all the other. 
This is working with us. He is not becoming God. He is God. But the God we have works with us. And he will, he will put set points up there. And he knows when to get to those points. But the journey that we are working on, we also need to differentiate between knowing and determining. He determined these things will happen. But the knowing of all the ways there, that's never said. Remember, this world began in chaos. Man was told to guard the area that God cleared. He failed. Cherubs were then placed there to guard it while man was banished outside of the protected area and into an unprotected area. When mankind descended into animalistic behavior in Genesis chapter 6, a flood came. And in Genesis 6, 6, God said he repented that he'd ever made man. Well, Calvinists will very often say, oh, but that's an anthropomorphism. They say that a lot. Now, what that means is that's just portraying God as if he was a man to get across a point. Nope. You don't get to do that. When God reveals himself and reveals his heart and reveals what he feels and cares about something, you don't get to say, oh, that's just an anthropomorphism. It's just a symbol. It's a little story to kind of help us know. When God says something, let's let him say it. He is the brokenhearted God. He is the continually spurned lover. He even talks about that in terms, oh my goodness. He talks to the Israelites and said, I gave you gifts. And you turned around and gave the gifts I gave you to another lover. You can feel the hurt. And then to whitewash that all away, no, God's in control. He's very, very strong. He's got all this. Let's stop that. Learn to love God, a God that loves you. And love requires bending and flexibility. Sadly, I'm afraid that a lot of people who believe this God is in control of all things also are the ones that talk about that the man must rule the household with an iron fist and the woman must cower. And, and you see them on Twitter and they're not helping the cause of Jesus a bit. A bit. How could God repent of making man if everything he ever did was part of his plan? Why would he make the world one way just to destroy it with the flood if he knew it all along? As I said last time, what does God know about the hundred dollar bills in my pocket? He doesn't know anything about them because I don't have any hundred dollar bills in my pocket. Nothing wrong with having hundred dollars. I just don't. I don't have a monkey in my pocket. I don't have a car parked in the next, uh, you know, next room back here. No, I, I, so what does God know about the car I've got parked in the bathroom? He doesn't because there isn't one. Futures do not exist. If you remember the drawing I did last week, and it's also going to be used, uh, what is that, the 24th in September, is it? Yeah, I think the 24th of September, uh, If in that sermon, you will see a line with a box on top. We were always in the box. That box is the present with all of its uh, potentialities and possibilities. 
We are always in that box. Anything below that line is history. Above that line is nothing except for whatever God has determined that we're going to hit. The points he has determined that we hit, but not the path. All right, let's look at a couple of other examples here. Um, and by the way, would you please you know, email, text in, talk about these things, but how long is acceptable? You know, yesterday, uh, well, it's last week for you. I wanted to go a couple of hours, but at one and a half hours, my voice started giving out. And so I stopped. Some long-term, uh, long-form videos can go up to four and six hours. And I'm not trying to do that to you. Um, I'm thinking maybe segments of two hours or less is what we do, but let me know. Uh, there will not be a quick response because we record these ahead of time, but it will teach me what you need. And I, I want to know how to love you better. Uh, our safe harbor, we have a tiny team. And one of the things we always ask when we go places, how can we love you better? And it's not just a line. We really need to know. Okay. All right. First Samuel 13 and verse 13. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Got it? Got it. He's talking to Saul. You've acted foolishly. You've not kept the commandment the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your line, your throne for all time. So not part of an immutable plan of God, but a negotiation and a contract. How about 1 Samuel chapter 15? Just a couple pages over. To save some time, just going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to read verse 11. Yeah. The word, well, verse 10 to the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. Samuel was troubled and he called out to God all that night. I am, God says, and it's Yahweh, it's the capitalized Lord. Yahweh says, I am grieved, I'm, what a mistake. I've done that a couple times. I've done hirings that almost as soon as I hired, I went, oh no, this one's on me entirely uh, and it it hurts and you try to save and try and after a while it just won't work then you have to let them go and that's incredibly painful for everybody and it's all on me i'm the one that did it and god here had hired a king and he goes i am so sorry i did that is that the god you were taught about but he's in the book it's um, same chapter. Let's let's not read too much. Um, let's see. I think down to verse thirty-five. Yeah. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again, though Saul mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Let me ask you a question: Is the future? set, known, or is it in part determined by our reaction to God? Is the future set and known, 
or is it in part determined by our reaction to God? I would submit to you the Bible screams the latter. Our prayers, our submission, our willingness to obey. Let's just keep going. Um, let's go back to the Pentateuch. Okay, if you're not a, not a church person and you're just trying to catch up, Pentateuch is just the first five books of the Bible, but it's really the core of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14 and verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? How long? Now, that could have been a rhetorical question. Uh, we don't expect an answer to that sometimes. You know, if I look at somebody and go, how long is it going to be before you respect what we're doing here? I don't expect them to say two months and six days because that would be sarcastic, wouldn't it? So we're going to look at that as rhetorical not as a God unknowing, but then he offers a solution. The Lord does. I'm going to strike down these people. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. Nobody's going to miss them. We're just going to let them die. And then I'm going to raise up a new nation through you, Moses. You will be the father of that nation and we will then lead them. And Moses goes, no, I don't want you to. And they, he, they talk back and forth. Moses goes, I don't think that'll be good for your reputation. Somebody's going to hear about it, and they're going to go back down to Egypt and say, that God that led them out then killed them. And that's not going to be good for your reputation. So he says, all right, okay. Then I won't do that. God offers us solutions, and sometimes we're able to look at him and go, I don't, I don't like that one. I don't think that one is going to work the way you think it's going to work. And God doesn't get angry and strike you with lightning because you're working with him. He even named his people Israel, which means those who wrestle with God. He likes the back and forth and it affects the future. It affects the path. Hosea 8 verse 5. I love the book of Hosea. Hosea 8 verse 5. Throw out your calf idol, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? God asks how long a lot. And sometimes he offers opportunities. And sometimes he lays out his plan and human beings mess it up so it doesn't happen. Yeah, you heard that right. But I didn't make it up. Isaiah chapter 5, a song of the vineyard. It's, it's called, because people wrote that in the margins. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. There he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it only yielded bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. He goes on further. 
what's going on here? He's saying, Israel, I had better plans for you. I had made everything perfect for you to thrive, but you would not go along. Therefore, plan B, I'm gonna pull the protection away. Remember, we live in a cosmos which, in which war is normative. And he said, um, you're gonna be trampled. I'm gonna pull away the hedge. Because you wouldn't work with me, I'm not gonna work with you, not now. In Isaiah, it talks about, I'm gonna try another plan later. He had a plan and the vineyard did not cooperate. The people did not cooperate. And Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah is really helpful when it comes to understanding God, the God we have. It is a difficult book to read, don't get me wrong. It seems that the chapters are out of order. There's a story about why that is, about uh, as they're fleeing, Baruch drops it and they fall into a different order, but that's the order in which they were received. So that's the order in which the people kept them. Um, it's a good story. I don't know if it's true or not, but when you read it, it does seem out of order, that it's out of sequence. But let's go to Jeremiah 3, 6 and 7. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord Yahweh said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she'd done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful Judah, uh, unfaithful sister, Judah, saw it. Did you catch that? He said, I thought they'd do this, but they didn't. God said, I thought they'd do this, but they didn't. Uh, how about, let's just stay in the same chapter. Um, verses 19 and 20. Yeah. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you've been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. I thought I could win you over, but I wasn't able to win you over. How could God's heart be broken if he already knew and foreordained the unfaithfulness? If he already foreordained and foreknew that the vineyard wasn't gonna work, why build it? And then why build it, tear it down, and act like you're upset about it when it was part of your marvelous unfolding plan? I hope you're understanding now that that idea, that comforting little security blanket we had all of those years doesn't work. It doesn't work because that's not the God we've got. Can God be shocked, scandalized, hurt by our behavior? Oh yes, Jeremiah again, Jeremiah nine. By the way, this, this happens three times in Jeremiah. Jeremiah uh, chapter 19 and verse five. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal. Here we go, ready? Something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. 
God says, I ain't, I didn't even see that one coming. Same in chapter 7, verse 31. Same in chapter 32, verse 35. Uses the same phrasing. Can he want to do something and then not do it because we refuse to cooperate? Yeah. Yeah. Ezekiel 22. Uh, let's go again, trying to shorten passages, but you know that you can always read the, the context. Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. He said, we could have, we could have fixed this. I was looking for somebody to stand in the gap. All right, let's explain that real quick. Uh, walls were the primary defense. When walls were breached, a hole was made in a wall, <clears throat> later by cannon fire and such. But in the time of Jesus, it would have been more by people just storming it with ladders, hooks, ropes, or bashing it down uh, and bashing a hole through it. Whenever a hole appeared, now your wall needed to be human beings. And you, the human beings who were brave enough would stand in there. In the British Army, they actually even had a term for them. They volunteered to go stand or to be the first in. They were called the Forlorn Hope. If I, they were promoted. By, you're not going to get promotion in the British Army back all the way up through World War I unless you had money to buy the promotion and there was a slot. You had to be a certain class to get certain promotions. Stupid system, but that explains a lot about how many people died in World War I by people going, oh, you know what would be a great idea? Even though it's failed the last 800 times, let's all blow a whistle and jump up there and run toward the machine guns. <clears throat> now you know why. But the forlorn hope would step in the gap. It's a dangerous place. You've got to be strong. You've got to be brave. And you might not survive. Odds are you're not going to survive. And God says, I kept trying to find someone and they wouldn't. So now I'm going to just tear down the walls. God had a plan. He had a desire. The people didn't cooperate. So it didn't work. Wow. Is your jaw on the floor yet? Well, how many times? November, uh, November. Numbers 11. Uh, Moses' prayer turns back the fire in the first two verses. Numbers 14, Moses' prayer stops the plague. Numbers 16, same, he stopped the plague. Exodus 32, God does not destroy Israel and raise up a new nation because Moses asked him not to. So just in Moses' life, there are four stark instances of God saying, I'm gonna do this. Moses saying, uh, would you do this instead? And God going, okay. Now again, you're gonna to try to ex explain that away by anthropomorphism? That doesn't work. It just doesn't. Because as soon as you try that, you gotta then do another and then another layer. And by the time you're done with your casuistic ratiocination, and yes, those are real words, you have created this Gordian knot 
around something which was very simple, and that is, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. I'll do these quickly. 2 Samuel 24, uh, Daniel stops the plague by building an altar and repenting. And the plague was stopped early. God said it was going to last a certain amount of time, and it didn't because of David. In 1 Kings 21, um, 21 through 29, God decides to hold off on punishment and bring it much later because the king humbled himself. So let's go to a couple more places and then we will um, we'll take a break, shall we? I hope you're enjoying these. I hope your jaws are on the floor because that's really where they should be after all of this that we're learning. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, just want to ask you what lessons you can learn here. 2 Chronicles 12, as soon as Patrick turns pages. I don't use the apps because as soon as you lean on an app for a broadcast, Wi-Fi goes down or something. 2 Chronicles um, chapter 12. Let's just do 5 through 8. Then the prophet Shemaiah came to Rehoboam and to the leaders of Judah who had assembled in Jerusalem for fear of Shishak. That's a great warrior who's coming against them. He said to them, this is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I'm going to abandon you now to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, Yahweh is just. In other words, we got that coming. He's right. When the Lord saw that they'd humbled himself, this word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. Since they've humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. They will, however, become subject to him so that they may learn the difference between serving me and serving the kings of other lands. So not going to be destroyed, but they will become servants of another kingdom. He's not going to pour out his wrath on him. God's going to hold it back because he saw that the, his people got it and realized we dropped the ball, we failed, we didn't hold the line. You have every right, God. What would happen as a people if we humbled ourselves before God? How many things could we change in our world? Our little venues or the, uh, the reach of things like Oshsi, um, we're out there on Twitter, we're out on YouTube, Vimeo, um, people watch us via different apps in different places. What, what, what could we do if we acknowledged God as God and humbled ourselves and admitted our failures and then suited up for the next try? With Moses, um, just go to chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus. Here's your homework. I know you're listening to an hour and a half plus thing. What more do you want us to do? But it might be interesting to go to Exodus 3 and 4, and there God is talking to Moses about what he plans to do. Circle the number of conditional words. If, may, and see how many there are there. And then ask yourself, does this look like a God who's planned every molecule from before creation until the end of time? The Egyptians had the 
They were free moral agents. They could have changed the plagues anytime. Because God said, if, may, if, may. In fact, God, when he leads them out, nobody told me this, by the way, in Vacation Bible School. We were, we had the Egyptians humbled by the death of the firstborn. Um, <laughs> they made that sound like a good thing at the time, you know. And then Pharaoh's son died. Now all of us little kids are going, yay! Um, now he's going to lead them out and takes them across the Red Sea. That's not what happened. Uh, if you look at chapter 13, Verse 17, God leads them out one direction and then it becomes too much resistance. And so God goes, okay, plan B, we're going to go this direction. Look at it. Exodus 13, Exodus 12, um, Exodus 12, verse 3, read that one. Read that one. He says, because I know what you're like. So we have to make some changes. Jesus himself did not act like he knew everything in the future either. And we are wrapping it up, guys. So if you're on the world's longest commute, um, you will have a chance to, to listen to another podcast. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. This bothered me when I was a boy. Um, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, you know this passage, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but thy will be done. We always rush to the not as my will, but thy will be done thing. If it be possible, he didn't know if it was. Interesting, isn't that? Once you start seeing it, you see it. Is the end of the world known by God? Yes. Mark 13, 32. Um, was it 2 Peter? Yeah, 2 Peter chapter... 3 verses 9 through 12 he knows the end of the world but it is the pathway now the pathway is really up to how we work with God or fail besides that let me close with this he says the time the time that things shall end and we always think of a date don't we and so people come up with the world's going to end in this date or this date or that date but there's another way to use that phrase there's another meaning for that phrase if back whenever my daughter was younger if she had come to me and said when can I date it, it's actually I know a lot of parents will say you know when you're 16 or and then you start with it that's not the smartest way to play this basically you say I'll know when it's time and by that you mean when you see a certain level of maturity, responsibility, that you, you know, a level of trust that you built and that you have a certain level of trust with the suitor that comes. It's the same with driving a car. When can I get my license? I'll let you know. I'll know the time. The time is not a date. It's a set of circumstances. So when the God talks about he knows the day or the time that the universe ends it may not mean a calendar. It may mean when we have arrived at a particular point that he is pulling us to, he can say, now. Think about it.
God bless you. Thank you for staying so long. Thank you for those of you who send in contributions so Miss Cammy and I and the team can actually eat and have homes. You have you've saved us time and time again. We will keep putting out these lessons as long as we can out of love, out of thankfulness, but also because we just want the world to know these things. It changes everything. And we think it makes things better. God bless you. Cheers.